Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, I discuss the relationship between process and result in horsemanship and how to me, they are exactly the same thing. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Today, I'd like to do a quick podcast on a topic that's been on my mind a lot. And it has to do with this concept of the process is the result. And this is something that I have been pondering quite a bit over the last few weeks. And mostly because of a horse I've been working with, but also just in general, noticing how maybe some things over time have shifted in my awareness as well, not only with horses, but with other things. And uh, so to kind of get into that topic a little bit, I would like to tell you a story about how I was at a clinic many years ago with a really great teacher. And I had not ever ridden with this particular clinician before. And uh, basically someone in his organization had sponsored some of the clinic for me because I was working with a horse that was a rescue horse. So I had never really met the people who had sponsored through his organization. I certainly hadn't met him. And I had it in my mind at the start of this clinic that I really wanted to thank him before we even got started because I was very appreciative of, you know, again, this sort of sponsorship that had happened on our behalf. So beginning of the clinic, you kind of come into the big arena, of course, and there's music playing in the background and everyone's warming their horses up and and the clinician hasn't arrived yet. So I was working with a a mare who had come off the track who had some tension issues, really nice mare, but definitely a horse that was a bit tight. And I was doing groundwork in this large arena with many people and the music's kind of blaring. And uh, I look up and the clinician has come into the arena and he's just groundworking his horse. So I kind of make my way over to him, kind of through wading through the different groups of people. Again, it was quite a large clinic. And uh, I came up to him and he was working with his horse and I st- sort of stood to the side and waited. And, uh, and then he caught my eye and I was like, hey, and I kind, of, I kind of hollered at him over the music and the sound of everybody else kind of talking and working with their horses. And, uh, and he, kind of, he kind of squinted and looked at me, couldn't quite hear me very well. And I I kind of said, hey, thank you so much. I just want to thank you. This is, you know, this is Lynn. I'm with this organization and really appreciate that, you know, through your group, people have sponsored us. And I just want to thank you. And, uh, and he looked at me and he was like, oh, okay. And then he said, uh, he said, you kind of like to push into pressure, don't you? And I was like, what? I didn't quite understand what he meant. And he's like, well, there's all this noise here. You know, there's this loud music and there's lots of people and you've never kind of been in this clinic before. And here you are, you crossed all the way across the arena, kind of, you know, weaving in and out of all these people. And through the music, you're kind of catching my attention. He said, that's kind of pushing into pressure. And I was just like, oh, well, I just wanted to thank you. And I thought nothing more of it. And I kind of went on with the clinic and it was a really good clinic. I learned a lot. And so did the mayor. It was a really good experience for both of us. But that always sort of stuck in my mind, like pushing into pressure. I didn't really think of myself as that kind of a person and uh, sort of filed it away in the back of my mind. And uh, over the next few years, I, I thought about that occasionally, certain times when I maybe had a little bit of a breakthrough or when I realized that I was maybe making things really difficult on myself without really meaning to. 
And I just would keep thinking of that little anecdote with the clinician that I was pushing into pressure. I didn't think of myself as an aggressive person, but I did recognize that I came to assume that just because I had maybe a bigger goal or whatever, that it would automatically have to be hard or there would have to be a lot of obstacles. And if I didn't see any obstacles, I would kind of create them in order to sort of justify being able to achieve the result. I know that sounds a little convoluted, but it was like as if the result didn't count or the goal didn't count unless it was going to be super, super hard. And certainly the best goals stretch us. They require us to grow and to develop new skills, but they shouldn't have to be, you know, excruciatingly difficult. And by excruciatingly difficult, I don't mean like, oh, I'm having to train for a marathon. It's so exhausting. I have to actually keep running all these miles every day. It's more that you make it excruciating because you put so many needless hardship on yourself. Some of that can be sort of the tone in which you talk to yourself or the kind of maybe just automatic assumptions about what is and isn't possible. So you sort of exhaust yourself mentally before you even get too far down the road. What this will create is a form of mental brace that you don't even see. It's kind of like a weird template in your mind. I have a goal. It's a little bit bigger goal. Of course, it will be very difficult and I will have to work very hard just to even make minimal progress on the goal. And because you're so occupied with sort of throwing these obstacles in your path, so to speak, you end up not making very much progress, which of course gives you a great excuse to berate yourself for not being good enough, which is another obstacle. So this is sort of the conclusions that I came to. Again, this is sort of over the course of a few years, kind of looking back at old patterns in myself and and seeing this also in many of the students and clients that I work with. And of course, not surprisingly, horses do this too, in a way. They don't do it for the same sort of, from the same sort of psychology that we humans have, but they are, as we know, very tied physically and mentally. And when a horse gets stuck mentally, they're also stuck in their feet and vice versa. And if you can help a horse mentally, you can help the horse physically. And if you can help a horse physically, you usually can help the horse mentally. Most of us know that already just from any kind of interaction with the horse over time. Uh, What I work with a lot through my work with the charity is I work with what are called war horses off the track. These are horses that ran for many years, sometimes not retiring from the track till age 10, 11, 12. And because of the nature of that particular sport, which does require to some degree pushing into pressure in terms of how the aids are applied to the horse while they're running. The horses that come off the track after that length of time have a lot of physical braces, primarily in their pull and axis and jaw, which of course affects all of the balance and how their back works. For racing fast, all of these things make sense. And I understand why the horses develop those braces. It's basically if you did one sport all the time for three quarters of your life and you retired in middle age, you're going to have some intense muscle memory patterns. You know, again, if you, let's say you played tennis that whole time you're, and you were right-handed, you're going to have a massively developed right forearm and maybe your left forearm would be less so. And you would have a really strong dominance on your right hand at all times. And if someone asked you to do something with your left hand, you might be a lot weaker because you're so used to 
using your right hand with the tennis racket and hitting all the time. Doesn't mean that you're incapable of developing the musculature in a more even way, but your muscles have over time really developed almost these braces. And then mentally, you might think that I just can't do that. Well, horses do that too. A lot of times when a horse really has a strong reaction to a simple aid, it could be of course, it could be pain, but let's assume it's not pain. It can be that this horse doesn't feel like it can move those shoulders a certain way or that it can put its balance equally on all four feet because it's used to these muscle memory patterns. So a lot of times, just like with people and horses together, what you have is two sets of mental braces and physical braces coming together. Let's say you have an old hip injury, maybe from your college basketball days or whatever, and you tend to, as a result, maybe collapse a little bit on your right side. Maybe you're not as even and straight on your right side. Maybe you tend to be a little more left side dominant as well. And so that's sort of the picture you present when you get on a horse. And if you happen to be riding a horse that maybe has a little bit of difficulty let's say bending to the left or bending to the right, you're also kind of out of sync. And the two of you can kind of end up sort of bracing against each other. And it can be very difficult to unravel all of that. You're both so sort of fixed in your patterns physically and to some degree mentally. A horse will have a lot of difficulty learning how to try if they get really used to staying in their braces all the time. And the person might get used to also saying, hey, I'm not going to ask my horse to shift his weight this certain way because he gets tense or he gets upset and I don't want to do that. I don't want to upset him. I don't really like that. And it makes me tense too. So they'll both you and your horse can kind of go along in this little tight box and not really understand how to get each other out of it, how to, how to help each other out of it. And that's when you're both sort of pushing into pressure in very different ways. So what is the solution to that? I have found that the solution to that is to simply focus on the process. So if your horse has, let's say, very tight shoulders, and as a result has a lot of trouble, let's say, side passing, or maybe gets very tense, even if you ask for the most mild of leg yields, The answer isn't to focus on the result and go, ah, we have to do 10 leg yields right now. We have to keep practicing leg yields until we get them just right because the the goal is the leg yield. I want a leg yield that's just right. That's pushing into pressure even more so. But if you focus instead on, okay, what is the process by which my horse needs to relax enough in, let's say it's the left shoulder so that he can actually take a step with that shoulder and stretch it out and do the start of a side pass or a leg yield if you're in motion. What is the first thing that that horse has to do? And if you think about that, you might go, well, the first thing that that horse needs to do is I need to make sure that his balance is appropriate. In other words, shift his weight. If he's got all of his weight on that left shoulder and on the left foreleg, then it's going to be really difficult no matter how hard I ask or how intensely I apply the aid. He's not going to be able to easily make the step that's necessary, the first step. So how can I help him do that? And if you start focusing on those things, again, what is the very tiny baby first step, not even the first step of having the horse sort of release its shoulder and step to the side with its left front leg, Even going before that, what's the very first step toward that first step? And it might be just that simple weight shift. 
It might be that your horse just relaxes a little bit on that side of his body. It might be that you loosen up the rib cage. You do something just a little bit related to the process itself, getting it started rather than I need you to leg yield right now and do it right. And in this kind of example, you're not babying the horse or letting, quote, letting the horse off the hook. What you're doing is recognizing that your horse, between some physical tension and then maybe some ideas that horse is built up about what is and isn't possible for himself physically, that that horse really doesn't think he can shift his weight easily. It's fairly rare. I mean, it can happen, but it's fairly rare that a horse is essentially refusing to do something because he just doesn't feel like doing it. It can happen for sure with certain types of horses, certain temperaments, but most of the time it gets back to there's a physical pattern and the horse has mentally become very invested in no change, doesn't think that they can change, doesn't think that they can shift their weight. They're afraid they're going to lose their balance and fall. And that's where you'll get a lot of that tension. Or they're afraid of something else. They're afraid they might be punished or they might be, you know, they might have a, an intense rain aid or, you know, they might have gotten spurred a lot in the past when they didn't do that maneuver correctly. And they've just built up a lot of aversion. But if you think about it instead as, Hey, I'm just going to sort of help unravel my horse a little bit, kind of look at again, that CSI mindset, what is the solution to this and how can we slowly break it down so that my horse understands that he can eventually do this movement, not all perfectly today, but just with that first baby step or two. And so in that regard, the process really is the result, the process of stepping back and figuring out what exactly is the knot that my horse is having and how can I help first just loosen the knot, not even try to cut the knot open or, you know, and tie it rapidly and with a lot of pressure, but what are the things that I can do to slowly, slowly untie that knot? And as you go through that process, you learn all about the subtleties of the aids and the very, very minute baby steps along the way toward that particular goal, toward that particular movement. And as a result of that, you become a much better rider. You're able also to understand when to release to your horse so that that horse feels reassured for trying, kind of rebuilding that try in the horse for something they thought was too hard for them to do or that they didn't understand how to do, particularly, let's say, in the case of a younger horse who may not really understand how to use his body in certain ways. You're helping him develop that athleticism and that understanding. So that process really is the result. It's not something you rush to so you can finally get that result and finally, finally get the leg yields. It's the process itself that actually is the result. It improves you as a rider and a horseman, and it also really helps your horse understand that you're there to support and help him. Now, sometimes support means applying a certain amount of clarity or setting a pretty strong boundary or a rectangle, but that still ultimately will be supportive if the horse understands that you're going to be consistent about it and that there is an answer. There's sort of an open door for that horse to go through. This will really help your partnership in the long term. And on a more psychological type level, the process is the result. Also means that you become truly more sensitive, aware as a rider and more patient and disciplined as a person. And that is actually the most important result of all because that is what will allow you to continue to grow and evolve, develop yourself, develop your skills as a rider and a horseman or a horsewoman, and also really help your horse the most.
What can be really fun about this approach is that it'll seem like nothing much is happening, that when you're focusing on the process, you may be spending a lot of time just helping your horse shift its weight or preparing the horse for that next transition that's coming. And that preparation might be taking place over a series of almost imperceptible shifts in your horse's attention and how it's carrying itself underneath you, how you're maybe maneuvering your own body. And to an outside observer, it might be like, oh, well, what's she doing? She's just kind of standing there with her horse. Maybe she's walking around with a really loose rein, or it looks like she's being a little aimless there in the arena. And so it doesn't have this sort of flashy look to it, like, oh, I can tell she's working on Piaf or whatever. It's these very small, almost imperceptible things. That's what the process often breaks down to when you look at it day to day. But then over the course of a few weeks or a couple months, there'll be these really very significant breakthroughs. And so that's the same also for you. These things that might not seem like a big deal, if you if you really focus on the process, it, it has that compound effect. And then, quote, all of a sudden, things are so much easier. But it took all of those long, slow, boring imperceptible little shifts and improvements that makes up the process to any large goal. Those were the things that were important. So again, that process ultimately is the result. I've been working with a warhorse who ran until age 11. He raced 90 times, won quite a lot of money and uh, he needed some turnout time. So he's been turned out for about six months. And all I've been doing with him is some light groundwork. He gets really, really excited. He gets really, really um, fired up, so to speak, when he thinks we're going to go do some work. And it's just a little bit of his way of pushing into pressure, right? He's like, oh, work means we've got to do something big. And it might be a little bit stressful, but this is, this is what work is. Super type A, I've got to go do it. And because of that, he gets into this mindset where he's going to maybe be a little bit choppier in his movements, a little more erratic, a little more troubled, but we're going to just kind of go fast. And predictably, what I've been doing with him is a lot of slow work on the ground. And one of his big braces is he's very locked up on the right side of his jaw and his axis and pull, much more so than the left. Although the left is not exactly supple either, but the right is so much worse. And so when you go maybe just ask for a very simple flexion, even just at even on the ground, just asking him to flex to the right slightly, he would have a lot of difficulty with not, not just physically, but mentally. He would, he would arch his neck. He would kind of chomp on the, on the, just grind his teeth. And he would maybe just kind of look at you out of the side of his eye and then almost like have a intensity about his forelegs as if he was thinking about striking. And there's a lot of uh, kind of hormonal impulse that comes along with sort of loosening the jaw and the pull and the axis. You can, it's kind of a long technical explanation for that, but sometimes a lot of emotion can come up with some very simple request when you have a horse that has that much sort of tension and old sort of muscle braces in those areas. So it would be a little bit delicate. I would just ask for it and he would sometimes get very emotional, not, not trying to be dangerous at all, but just there was a lot of intensity there. And, uh, and I could rarely get a full relaxation. I didn't expect it, but I would release for like these little tries, like, well, maybe this time he couldn't really get his nose to me, but he softened his jaw. Or maybe he just tried to, for a minute, soften in the tiniest bit in his pull. 
just the smallest things. And so that became what I focused on, not like, well, why can't you just like, you know, bend to the right? Like I was just like, no, this is something that is a little more complex for this horse. Well, a few days ago, I took him into the round pen and I was working with him very simply. And I went and tried that kind of right flexion, right side flexion again. And he kind of was just sort of pausing there on the end of the lead rope and not putting a ton of pressure, but just, just sort of processing there. And then he quote, all of a sudden completely softened and gave me the most perfect flexion to the right that I had actually felt in a long time from any horse whatsoever. And it was very significant to this horse. He had this massive release you know, very, very large, just licking and chewing his whole face relaxed. And it took a while. And uh, what do you think I did next after that? What, 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 what do you think I might do to continue that session? Well, what I did was I ended it because not because he did just a perfect flexion, but because it meant so much to him that he could actually soften like that. And that all of those little baby steps that we'd been working on, I mean, quite seriously for weeks and weeks, that finally culminated for him in something, an understanding and a softness. But if you were watching us from the side of the round pen, it would just look like he tipped his nose to the right, no big deal. But of course to the horse, it meant the world to him to be able to do that. And he walked back to his pasture as calm and quiet as I've ever seen him. I hope you've enjoyed this episode about how the process really is the result. If you're working on something with your horse and you're not sure if you're focusing on the process or the result, shoot me a line at horsewisecoach at icloud.com and I'll be glad to answer some questions. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.